Hello and welcome to the Future Leaders Communicate podcast number 10. This podcast covers the July 2022 edition of the Future Leaders. Um, my name is Dr. Brendan Morrissey, and I'm joined today by Dr. Tiffany Tai, our guest editor for the edition. Tiffany, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming along. Tiffany, can we start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background and your interests? Yeah, sure. So I'm currently a PGY for RMO, working at Royal Darwin Hospital. I completed medical school as part of the extended rural cohort at Monash University, and then worked for my first two years at the Royal Melbourne Hospital before I moved up north. I've always been interested in health improvement, and I worked for three months in a non-clinical role as a health improvement HMO at Royal Melbourne. Doing this role gave me a greater appreciation of the bigger picture of health system operations, which in turn has helped me to understand how the seemingly small things that we do day to day as junior doctors can have a big overall impact. Great. Well, you've put together a fantastic edition for us. We might start by listening to our editorials. So without further ado, here are the editorials. Future Leaders Communiqué, episode number 10. Guest editorial from Tiffany Tai. Every day in every hospital, patients are being transferred between wards and units. Transfers between wards are generally not a very exciting part of the job for a junior doctor. We do not make the decision to transfer a patient. We do not allocate the bed spaces, despite some patients thinking we do. We do not gather the equipment needed to move the patient. Our job is more prosaic. The paperwork, and we all know the paperwork, often falls lower on the priority list against other tasks such as the clinical reviews, admissions and cannulas. In addition, if the patient is being transferred to another team, then we will no longer be involved in their care. If they are moving bed location but remaining under our care, we will still see them so it does not materially change anything except perhaps a few more or less flights of stairs to traverse to reach their ward. Usually, the transfer is straightforward and with everyone doing their part, it occurs smoothly and the cogs of the hospital keep turning. However, many of us might recall being on a dreaded cover shift where we are called to review a new patient with a dauntingly large file containing paradoxically scant and illegible notes. The patient is confused and the nurse who took the handover is on break. Suddenly, trying to work out what is going on, and moreover, what to do next, becomes an insurmountable task. That transfer summary we never had time to complete, or the verbal handover we never gave when no one returned our page, looms large. Indeed, I once attended a clinical code for a patient recently discharged from the intensive care unit. The code was called for supraventricular tachycardia, and the intensive care unit discharge summary had a single line stating tachyarrhythmias, noted in ICU. I presumed this SVT was the same tachyarrhythmia they had noted in ICU and would have liked to have shown whether there was a plan in place for managing it. Thankfully, the SVT self-reverted and the patient stabilised. The case we examine in this edition brings the transfer process from ICU to the ward under scrutiny and highlights the importance of clinical communication surrounding the transfer of care between teams of critically ill patients. Clinical communication takes many forms. Notes, summaries, forms, verbal handovers, phone calls and more. It is important because patients are inherently complex as are the hospital systems we operate within. How can we convey our clinical rationale accurately on paper? How do we find time to read the entirety of the patient's file? How do we know what details to pass onto a colleague over the phone? 
How do we remember all that was said to us on the call? Having a combination of modes of communication and a process to prompt us to perform communication tasks may seem laborious, but these interventions enable information gaps to be filled, and ultimately, this creates a safer environment for our patients. I would like to thank our guest expert commentators for this edition, Dr. Bruce Lister and Dr. Rezi Van Beek, both of whom are brilliant intensivists with a wealth of experience and who share their pearls regarding some of the issues particular to this case, fluid management, handovers, calling criteria, and escalating care. The clinical scenario presented in this edition is a complicated case that emphasizes the challenges of managing a complex, unwell patient. There is a lot to unpack. As you read through the case, I encourage you to consider if you were the junior doctor on the team, what would you have done differently? What lessons can we learn from this to make us better in our practice tomorrow? Editorial from Brendan Morrissey. Welcome to the July 2022 edition of the Future Leaders Communique. This edition centers around the care of a complex patient, MK, during the transition from an intensive care unit to ward-based care. At a significant decision point in MK's management, there is a breakdown in communication between her treating teams. The cascade of events after this ultimately ends in MK's death. George Bernard Shaw famously observed that the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it's taken place. For any patient presentation, the volume of information held by the primary treating team may be vast. The team will have built a framework of concerns and priorities for the patient, of the issues they wish to address and their expectations for the trajectory of the patient's care. In a complex case such as that of MK, this framework will be nuanced and multi-layered. It will shift and evolve over time. While the phrase transfer of care has a simple, almost transactional air to it, Effectively communicating this complicated matrix of information to another team is fraught with the potential for misinterpretation and error, especially for those patients who have had a prolonged or complicated admission to date. A change in their treating team can remove the safety net of continuity and care with disastrous results. It is worth pausing to reflect on the transfer of care process and consider how we can improve communication between teams at this pivotal time. As a junior doctor, what role do you play in the transfer of a patient's care from your own unit to another? What opportunities do you have to improve that process? Much of the granular detail of a patient's admission is held by junior doctors on the team. Documentation of daily ward rounds, communication with carers and family members, updates and revisions of medical charts, explanations and discussions of consent with patients, these tasks are all routinely delegated to the most junior members of the team. The responsibility may fall to you to accurately communicate and document these many strands of patient care to the incoming team. Similarly, for the receiving team, once handover has occurred, it can at many times be the junior doctor who is first made aware of discrepancies, drug chart errors, changes in the patient's status, concerns raised by carers or family members. How can you best advocate for your patient when these challenges arise? What obstacles do you face? This case presents us with exactly these questions. It offers us the opportunity to reflect on what occurred and how we might learn from it to improve our own practice. Our guest editor for this edition is Dr. Tiffany Tai. 
Tiffany is an intensive care resident at Royal Darwin Hospital, Northern Territory. As an intensivist in training, Tiffany has a passion for patient safety and has deftly navigated this complex, challenging, multifaceted coroner's case and elucidated some of the critical lessons. The expert commentaries are provided by Associate Professor Bruce Lister and Dr. Rezi Van Beek. Associate Professor Bruce Lister is a Senior Staff Specialist in Paediatric Intensive Care at the Mater Children's Hospital, Brisbane, and an Associate Professor at Griffith University Medical School, Gold Coast. He offers us insight into fluid and electrolyte balance in the critically ill patient. Dr Van Beek is an Intensive Care Staff Specialist in the Royal Darwin Hospital, Northern Territory, and presents us with a reflection on safe care of the deteriorating patient. We hope that you find this edition valuable in your ongoing learning. Welcome back. I'm joined still by Dr. Tiffany Tai. Tiffany, we're about to listen to the case summary. Can you tell us what you learned from researching this case and what your peers may take from it? Yeah, so the case that we'll discuss today is the case of MK. And it was a case that was particularly interesting to me because MK was a complex patient who was looked after in the intensive care. And intensive care training is where I'm going into in terms of my career. Analyzing this case provided many important learning points, including the importance of clear clinical communication, the risk associated with altering clinical review criteria, and the challenges of fluid management. The transition of care for MK from going from the intensive care unit to the ward could potentially have been much safer with some basic measures, including clearer handovers and documentation, without even needing to have further medical expertise. I think it's also important to note that the themes that we'll discuss are relevant to all the patients we look after in the hospital, not just those who are in the intensive care. I agree, Tiffany, there's so much to learn from this case. Let's listen to the case summary. Lost in translation from Dr. Tiffany Tai. Clinical summary. MK, a 33-year-old woman, presented to a large regional hospital with a two to three day history of vomiting and diarrhea. Her past medical history included malnutrition, depression, and chronic alcohol dependence, from which she had been abstinent for two years. MK was admitted with severe malnutrition and electrolyte derangement. She weighed only 40 kilograms and her initial blood tests found multiple abnormalities, including low serum levels of sodium, potassium, magnesium, ionized calcium, chloride, and albumin. Due to her severe electrolyte derangement and risk of refeeding syndrome, she was admitted to the intensive care unit for close monitoring. Her admitting team was endocrinology and the gastroenterology team was asked to consult. During her time in ICU, the approach to her fluid management varied. Her hyponatremia was treated with intravenous saline. Her clinical condition fluctuated and managing her fluid balance proved challenging. CT scans demonstrated third spacing of fluid evidenced by pleural effusions and ascites. The CT scan also demonstrated bowel wall thickening. This finding, along with her presenting symptom of diarrhea, raised the suspicion of inflammatory bowel disease. To investigate this concern further, arrangements were made for MK to undergo a colonoscopy. On the day MK was planned to be discharged from ICU to the ward, the consulting gastroenterology team recommended diuresis and a light sodium diet. 
Her primary treating team, endocrinology, observed that her abdomen was distended and bowel sounds were difficult to hear. Both teams noted a persistent tachycardia with a heart rate of 120 to 133 beats per minute. Given this abnormal vital sign was unexplained, both teams considered it was unsafe for her to be transferred to the ward. They duly documented their concerns in the clinical progress notes. On the same day, MK told the intensive care registrar that while she still had ongoing intermittent abdominal pain and distension, she otherwise felt good and her diarrhoea had resolved. The ICU team made the decision to transfer her to the ward. With regards to her tachycardia, the ICU team amended her clinical review criteria so that an emergency medical review would only be triggered if her heart rate was above 130 beats per minute. The endocrinology and gastroenterology teams were unaware that MK was to be transferred to the ward. They were also unaware that the emergency medical review criteria had been altered. MK left the ICU for the ward that afternoon. MK's colonoscopy was scheduled for the following day. Once on the ward, she was commenced on a bowel preparation regimen which involved drinking a glycoprep solution. Later that evening, MK's oxygen saturations dropped to 93% on 2 litres per minute of oxygen via nasal prongs. Her nurse discussed this with after-hours medical officer who advised to increase the supplemental oxygen to 3 litres per minute. That night, MK reported feeling hot and cold and short of breath. Her nurse again contacted the after-hours medical officer to request a clinical review. The medical officer instructed the nurse to write up the request in the after-hours job book. Around midnight, MK called for the nurse so that she could use a bedpan. After providing assistance to MK, the nurse left her sitting in bed, still drinking the glycoprep solution. Shortly after, the nurse returned and found MK unresponsive and activated the call for an emergency medical team response. The emergency medical team attended, MK was resuscitated, her airway secured and she was transferred back to the ICU. Over the next few weeks, MK was weaned off her sedation, however she failed to make any meaningful neurological recovery. After a family meeting, she was transitioned to comfort care measures and died two days later. Pathology. As MK's death was sudden and unexpected, the care provided to her in hospital was examined by the coroner. The autopsy determined that MK's cause of death was hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy with the antecedent cause of in-hospital cardiopulmonary arrest and resuscitation. Additional contributors to her death were chronic alcoholism with liver disease and malnutrition with refeeding syndrome. Investigation. An independent expert review panel comprising three intensive care consultants explored the events leading up to MK's death. The panel addressed issues pertaining to her clinical status and the decision to transfer her to the ward with particular attention given to 1. Management with electrolytes and fluids, 2. Cause of deterioration and arrest, and 3. Communication around transfer between ICU and the ward. Regarding the management of MK's malnutrition and refeeding risk, the expert suggested that replacement of micronutrients such as thiamine, multivitamins and folate would be recommended. MK also remained at high risk of complications from refeeding syndrome, including sudden cardiac death and acute respiratory failure. 
The investigation found no evidence of micronutrient replacement, and overall, the management of micronutrient replacement was not well coordinated. The experts all noted that at the same time of transfer from ICU to the ward, MK was grossly fluid overloaded. She was retaining 11.8 kilograms of fluid, which was likely the result of ongoing intravenous fluid therapy to treat her initial hyponatremia. They proposed that the rate of saline replacement should have been reviewed and adjusted on the second day of her admission, and her low body weight and clinical signs of overload should have been considered. On balance, it was considered that the prescribed treatment for hyponatremia led to gross fluid overload. The experts noted that the dispute to transfer from ICU to the ward revolved around MK's tachycardia, but the more serious concern, her fluid overload, was not recognised. The panel agreed that a combination of factors could have led to MK's cardiac arrest, including her fluid overload, acute pulmonary edema, and possible aspiration of the glycoprep solution. The investigation revealed that the opposition of the endocrinology and gastroenterology teams to transferring MK out of ICU were made as entries in the progress notes. These were not seen by the intensivist as their documentation took place after her ward round. One expert commented that the electronic record is a valuable repository of information, but a poor and dangerous communication tool. During the inquest, which occurred three years after the event, There were discrepancies in recollections from the doctors involved about what verbal discussions took place. Overall, despite the written and verbal communication, the message that the endocrinology and gastroenterology teams disagreed with the decision to transfer MK to the ward did not reach the ICU consultant. MK was transferred to the ward. Her transfer summary was incomplete and there were no verbal medical handover between the ICU and ward teams upon transfer. The experts did note that without knowing operational details, such as the bed state of the hospital, acuity of the other patients in the unit, and what other referrals may have been waiting in the emergency department, it would be inappropriate to criticise the decision made for MK to be transferred to the ward. Following MK's arrival to the ward, her nurse twice flagged concerns with the after-hours medical officer, but MK did not undergo a medical review. Following her death, the hospital instigated many changes to the processes of ward transfers from ICU to the ward and after-hours medical review. These included a new policy and procedure guideline for transfer from ICU to the ward, changes in rostering to provide increased medical staffing for weekday evenings, the abolition of the after-hours job book, and audits for compliance in ongoing staff education. The new procedure guideline requires that for patients being transferred from ICU to the ward, there must be a verbal clinical handover between medical staff and the patient must be reviewed by a registrar on the ward within one hour of arrival. All medication and fluid orders must be reviewed and recharted. Ideally, transfers should occur within business hours when staffing levels are higher. Disputes around transfers must be resolved at a consultant-to-consultant level and can be escalated to the Director of Medical Services or Director of Intensive Care. Alterations to medical review criteria must be initiated at a consultant level, discussed with the treating teams involved, regularly reviewed and documented in the ICU discharge summary. The coroner acknowledged that risk analysis regarding other ill patients and competing demands for beds in the ICU influences clinical decision-making about the transfer of patients. However, 
Considering MK's significant fluid overload, the ICU would have been the best place for her to be monitored. Thus, the coroner concluded that the decision to transfer her to the ward had been premature. The inquest determined that poor communication surrounded the decision to transfer MK to the ward. The coroner found it inappropriate that the opposition to transfer raised by the endocrinology and gastroenterology teams was not known by the ICU team. Furthermore, it was inappropriate that the transfer went ahead without the gastroenterology or endocrinology teams being made aware. Author's comments. With the benefit of hindsight, we can appreciate the impact of poor communication on the events surrounding MK's death and recognise how the subsequent changes made by the hospital aim to provide safer care. Many of the changes implemented following MK's death were designed to improve the communication within the hospital. The new procedure delineates what tasks are required to ensure clear clinical communication and the hospital has provided further resources in the form of increased staffing to achieve this. This high-level organisational planning may seem beyond the scope of a junior doctor. However, when we break down the tasks involved, writing discharge summaries, handing over patients between shifts, escalating issues to senior doctors and responding to concerns raised by nursing staff, these are all part of the routine work of a junior doctor. Sometimes these tasks may seem mundane or of a lower priority than providing direct clinical care, but they are vital to the safety of our patients. Junior doctors play a key role in ensuring that the processes and systems within the hospital are successful. Welcome back. Our next section will be the expert commentaries for this edition. Tiffany, our first commentary is called Escalating Clinical Care in the Deteriorating Patient, and it's by Dr. Rezi Van Beek. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned from this uh, expert commentary? Sure. So, first of all, thank you both to Dr. Rezi and Dr. Bruce for um, coming along as guest expert commentators for this edition. Dr. Van Beek explores the complexities and the nuance about what it means to alter clinical review criteria. She describes communication between different teams within the same medical team and between medical and nursing staff. What struck me about her commentary is how all these elements that she explains come back to this core idea of us working all together as one big team. And I think when we keep this focus at the forefront of our minds, it helps to remind us and inspire us to provide the best possible patient care. I couldn't agree more. Our second and third commentaries are both provided by Associate Professor Bruce Lister. The first of those is fluid and electrolyte management, and the second of those is about handover. Tiffany, can you tell us a little bit about what our, our listeners uh, may learn from these commentaries? Yeah, so Dr. Lister gives us some really practical advice on management of fluid and electrolytes. These tips are really valuable, as I think the amount of fluid that gets prescribed in hospitals every day likely far outweighs the average understanding about how to manage fluid balance. I think fluids often seem quite benign, but in actual fact, they can be quite dangerous like any other drug. And I think there are some really simple um, and practical pearls that can give us, including remembering to ask for daily weights and always assessing the fluid status of your patient before you go to prescribe a bag of salty water. In terms of um, Dr. Lister's commentary on a clinical handover, I think he makes a really valid point about how even though handover isn't seen as primarily an educational activity, there's an immense amount that can be learned from handover 
both from observing handover as well as participating in. And that's something that I think we can continue to learn on throughout the entirety of our clinical careers. Sounds like there's plenty to learn from these commentaries. Let's listen to them now. Expert commentary, fluid and electrolyte management from Associate Professor Bruce Lister. What do I need to know about homeostasis? Fluid overload and iatrogenic hyponatremia can be fatal. A clear understanding of fluid and electrolyte homeostasis can save your patient's life. Blood volume and serum osmolality are regulated by baroreceptors, antidiuretic hormone, and sodium natriuretic peptide. Homeostasis can be upset by triggers for the release of antidiuretic peptide via multiple pathologies or by human interventions such as the intravenous fluid and electrolyte administration. Fluids and electrolytes can be more safely administered internally, relying on physiological mechanisms to adjust absorption and excretion of water and electrolytes. Intravenous fluids are required if the patient is shocked. Consider the rate of fluid loss. If fluid loss is rapid, as with hemorrhage, fluids should be replaced rapidly. If fluid loss has occurred over a long period of days, fluid replacement should be slower and ideally by the enteral route. Urgent intravenous correction or electrolyte abnormalities is required in some circumstances, for example hyponatremia in a convulsing patient. What should I focus on when correcting fluid and electrolyte abnormalities? Sodium, as the major cation in extracellular fluid, has an important role in regulating intravascular fluid volume because of its contribution to total serum osmolality. Hyponatremia is not usually due to sodium loss. It is more likely due to fluid overload. The treatment is fluid restriction, particularly water, and not the administration of sodium chloride, unless there are signs of neurological dysfunction. This can be challenging in a patient with signs of hyperperfusion. Do not correct a presumed sodium deficit with intravenous sodium chloride with the accompanying fluid volume until volume status has been assessed and dilutional hyponatremia excluded. Always consider whether you can correct fluid and electrolyte abnormalities enterally. Concern about refeeding syndrome is not a contraindication. If using the gut is not possible and the patient is closely monitored, slow intravenous infusions of hypertonic sodium chloride can be used when there are significant concerns about the risk of cerebral edema due to hyponatremia or when water restriction has been ineffective. Diuretics have variable effects on serum sodium. If sodium loss is greater than water loss, diuretic administration might result in a further drop in the serum sodium. If diuretics are used to treat fluid overload, serum sodium needs to be closely monitored. How can I best assess fluid balance? Accurate measurement of fluid balance is challenging even in a critical care environment. In addition to prescribed maintenance and resuscitation fluids, Fluid is required to deliver intravenous medications, particularly vasoactive drugs and antibiotics. In patients at risk of fluid overload, these additional volumes should be recorded and included in the assessment of fluid balance. In some patients, particularly children, this fluid can exceed maintenance fluid volumes. There is a move to abandon routine prescription of intravenous maintenance fluids especially in temperature and humidity-controlled environments, and to encourage oral intake. Weighing the patient daily is the most accurate method to monitor fluid balance. 
bed and chair scales are available, so there is no excuse for non-ambulatory patients. Cumulative fluid balance should be recorded in addition to daily fluid balance estimations. Expert commentary handover from Associate Professor Bruce Lister. Accurate and efficient handover of clinical information is vital for quality health outcomes, and yet the responsibility for this is often assigned to the most junior member of the team. Clinical handovers are one of the more visible manifestations of the hidden curriculum. Junior doctors may struggle to learn the heuristics, or this is the way we do it around here, because there are limited opportunities to observe more senior members of the team perform handover. Junior doctors should treat handovers as an opportunity for learning and actively seek feedback on their performance. Despite being anxiety-provoking, clinical handover provides an excellent opportunity to check medical knowledge, clinical examination skills, clinical reasoning, and ability to synthesize and prioritize management. Lack of psychological or educational safety can impact patient safety and impede learning from handover performance. If the handover giver feels unsafe, they are less likely to acknowledge uncertainty and ask for help, thus increasing the risk of error. An understanding of cognitive load theory can help junior doctors manage handovers more efficiently. Large amounts of information can cause cognitive overload, with experience and more detailed illness scripts freeing up space in working memory, handovers become easier. The junior doctor can minimise extrinsic load by using a structured approach to handovers. Check in with the team to determine which model is used locally before attempting clinical handover. And remember that the handover receiver may also struggle with the volume of information being transmitted. The ability to distill essential from non-essential information is vital for efficient handover. Clinical handover is a collaborative process involving the interprofessional healthcare team. Handover of complex patients and in situations where there is disagreement over management and or patient disposition, that is to say the location where the patient is going to be cared for, warrants an escalation to more senior doctors. Junior doctors should be encouraged to feel comfortable speaking up when out of their depth with any aspect of the clinical handover. Expert commentary, escalating care in the deteriorating patient from Dr. Ressi Van Beek. Clinical review criteria. This coroner's case clearly demonstrates how modification of the clinical review criteria on a patient's observation chart carries risk. Abnormal observations of significant change in observations should be a trigger to assess for signs of clinical deterioration. Depending on the severity of the abnormality, how far is the observation outside of the normal range, the speed of change, and concurrent with other concerns, escalation according to the most suitable clinical pathway should occur. This provides a safety net for deteriorating patients on the wards. Modifications to these clinical review criteria can take away the initial trigger. It may be appropriate for patients who are known to have observations outside of the normal range, which we consider indeed normal for that patient. Another reason a short-term modification may be appropriate is for a patient recognised to have abnormal observations and who is already being treated and is sufficiently stable to await the effect of the installed management. In all instances, if a patient does not reach the trigger for escalation, it does not mean staff should not be vigilant. 
Any other reason recognised for concern should still lead to the appropriate escalation response. A modification to a single physiological value in the observation does not mean there is no concern about this patient in general. It also does not mean that medical reviews, medical emergency team calls or emergency codes should not be requested. It simply means that hopefully a senior clinician has used clinical judgment to decide that an abnormal physiological value is acceptable for a specific patient for a given time frame. Ideally, the clinical reasoning for this decision has been documented and the thought process is clearly communicated to other staff members. This promotes clarity and better understanding of the clinical reasoning which informs their own clinical judgement to assess if escalation needs to occur should circumstances change. Interprofessional communication. This brings me to the next topic relating to the case. Communication. Most of us are aware that adverse events in clinical patient care often relate to communication, or more precisely, the lack of good communication. In relation to written communication, I have noticed that our final decisions are often documented in a dot-point fashion, but the clinical reasoning leading to the decision is frequently lacking or unclear. It is perhaps a result of the time constraints. It might also be because the person documenting, often the most junior member of the team on the daily rounds, is not the one making the decision. The writer may have limited or no insight into that thought process. In relation to verbal communication, which appears in this case to be lacking at the time of ward transfer, I would argue that for all complex patients, such as those who have multiple organ systems involved in their acute illness, with multiple comorbidities and or with multiple teams involved in their care, the patient requires regular face-to-face -face bedside meetings and or multidisciplinary team meetings. In doing so, we allow ourselves to reflect on the situation and the concerns of others by looking at the case from a different perspective, both from an individual patient care perspective as well as from an organisational perspective. The decision-making that comes from those discussions is more likely to improve patient safety, lead to decisions that all team members are comfortable with and ultimately save time. A five-minute telephone conversation from specialist to specialist leading to a final decision will inevitably reduce the need for ongoing discussions between other, more junior team members when a disagreement is recognised in the written notes. Also, asking for telephone advice can resolve questions or concerns immediately without having to wait for a more formal assessment on a consultation ward round. I would also like to emphasise that these discussions should take place interprofessionally as well. We as medical staff can gain valuable insights from concerns and ideas from our nursing and allied health colleagues, as well as vertically within our own team. Although senior specialists were junior doctors at one stage in their career, it is not always easy to place yourself back in the position of the ward medical officer on night cover. Reflecting on their concerns can offer insights that senior clinicians would otherwise not have considered. Escalation of care. My final comment is on escalation of care. As I have explained above, modifications in clinical review criteria can have a role and requires good clinical judgement to avoid them impacting on a clinical safety net. Ward staff should always feel comfortable in escalating care for a deteriorating patient whom they are concerned about. If modifications on charts lead to nursing staff and junior doctors not feeling comfortable in escalating their concerns, then the modifications are not helpful.
Instead, they would in fact be dangerous. I hope that track and trigger charts, early warning scores, medical emergency response scores, and other tools for detection of deterioration empower the clinicians assessing those patients to use their clinical judgment and feel comfortable to ask for help. They provide senior clinicians the ability to work together with the team on the ward and to teach elements of assessment and management. Furthermore, they give opportunities to teach clinical reasoning. How and why did we come to the decisions we make? Welcome back. Our last section is comment from our peers. Tiffany, can you tell me what comment uh, resonated with you the most and why? Yeah, so this is a comment. I'll just read it out to you. It states that clear documentation of the reasons behind altering clinical review criteria is of utmost importance. Understanding when and why changes have been made will enable better decision-making if the patient deteriorates. I thought this was a really insightful comment because as a junior member on the team, it's very easy to often think that someone more experienced or someone smarter has made a decision and you just accept it on face value. However, once we understand the rationale for the choices that are made, this helps us to expand our own knowledge as well as exercise our own critical thinking, which ultimately helps us to provide safer care and become better clinicians. Without further ado, let's listen to comments from our peers. Comments from our peers. It is important to hand over patients when transferring from team to team, especially when complex issues are involved. Assessment of fluid balance can be extremely difficult and requires plenty of practice. A thorough history and examination are essential for accurate assessment of fluid balance. Providing care to a complex, critically ill patient may require many teams to be involved. It is crucial that clear, continuous communication occurs between teams to ensure safe patient care. It is important to review patients whose vital signs have deviated from the expected trajectory. Patient safety is the responsibility of every team member. If something doesn't seem right, speak up. Clear documentation of the reasons behind altering clinical review criteria is of the utmost importance. Understanding when and why changes have been made will enable better decision-making if the patient deteriorates. That concludes our episode 10 of our Future Leaders Communicate podcast. Thanks so much to Dr. Tiffany Tai for the uh, expertise she brought to this edition. I hope you all have learned something from it and can use this as a resource for the future. We'll see you again for our next edition of the Future Leaders Communicate podcast.